Let me open us with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, please bless the reading and the teaching of your word. Uh, You are in this place. Um, Help us to learn, to grow. Help us to be men and women who are full of submission and honor, who are full of hope and fearlessness, who are full of gentleness and tranquility for the sake of your kingdom and your great name. In your name we pray, amen. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Cliché, but true. I could describe uh, a sunset in the most moving and beautiful and poetic ways, but it's nothing quite like experiencing it. You just can't get over watching it for yourself. In the same way, I think it's also true that a life lived which embodies the love and grace of God is worth more than a hundred good sermons or two or three hundred if they're mine. Um, one that always captured and captivated you know, my, my imagination was that of Corey Ten Boom. Uh, she, she was the daughter of a Dutch watchmaker, and she was industrious and intelligent. In fact, she became the, uh, the first licensed female watchmaker in the Netherlands. She ran the home and the, the finances of the business as well. But even above her intelligence and industriousness, uh, her whole family was charitable and kind. Uh, she, um, even before the war started, uh, she uh, ran Bible studies for the youth faithfully. She tutored mentally disabled children for free, and often her family helped those in need in the community financially and otherwise. Of course, when the Nazis invaded, the whole family uh, began hiding Jews and helping them to escape at great personal risk to themselves. It's estimated uh, that they helped save something like 800 lives uh, from death and imprisonment. Uh, of course, she and her family were finally caught and arrested. Her father died 10 days later in prison, and she and her sister Betsy were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Uh, her sister... Uh, and her suffered unimaginable degradation. And her sister died in that place just days before Corey's own release in December of 1944. But Corey wasn't done being a life lived for the gospel. After she got out, she didn't withdraw and go live by herself somewhere. Instead, inspired by Betsy's example of selfless love and forgiveness, Corey established a post-war home for other camp survivors helping them to recover from the horrors that they had escaped. She went on to travel widely as a missionary. She preached God's love and forgiveness and reconciliation. You can find some of her messages still on YouTube today. There's even a particularly moving story about how uh, after one of her messages, one of the guards from Ravensbrook concentration camp came and asked for her forgiveness. At first, she said she wasn't able to offer it, but when she finally extended her hand in a gesture of forgiveness, she says that she had never experienced the love of God as she had in that moment. Uh, I am led to ask how, in the midst of such reckless hate, was she able to offer such love and forgiveness? And I believe it must be and points to and mirrors the love of Christ in her life. That is how she was able to do it. She becomes and became the gospel embodied and lived in beautiful gentleness, tranquility, love, and forgiveness. And I think 
That's what this text is about. I think the aim and message of this text is that when Christians live lives full of submission and honor for one another, fueled by hope and fearlessness, full of gentleness and tranquility, we display Jesus to a lost and needy world. But Brandon, I hear you say, isn't this text about wives and husbands? Well, yes and no. On one level, it is obviously about wives and husbands, as we'll see. But if we go up uh, just a few verses earlier, look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We read there that we are God's royal priesthood. We are his king priests. We are his special possession. And for what purpose? Peter tells us, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous night light. In other words, I, you, all of us here were once in deep darkness, caught up in all sorts of horrible things. I am full of laziness, selfishness, greed, lust, deceit, anger, fear of what others think of me, but desperate for their approval and praise. Jesus sees us in the midst of all of that, and he does not hate or abandon or judge, which he should do justly, but instead he loves. He comes and he rescues us out of it. And so Peter calls us to put that rescuing love on display. He says in verses 9, 10, and 11, by maintaining good conduct, he calls it. We are to maintain a life of beautiful conduct as exiles in a vast empire of unbelief. And what Peter means here is not just stay out of trouble, keep your nose clean, uh, hide away in some corner somewhere. No, it means that like Christ, we live lives oriented toward service of each other and of the world around us. In other words, we do so much good that when the world calls us hateful, misogynistic, and bigoted, and phobic, their charges ring hollow and false. If we do this, Peter tells us, some might see the good we do and glorify God. That's why Peter asks us as a church in 2.13 to be subject to every human institution. That is the purpose. In fact, 2.13 all the way through chapter 3, I think, is simply Peter giving us portraits or vignettes, specific instances of what he wants us to do in 2.9 through 12. Display the excellencies of Christ so that a lost world can see it and turn and glorify God. That's why this passage is obviously about husbands and wives, but it's also instruction for all believers. In other words, I think that I as a man can learn from the example of this wife. I have just as much to learn from, from, this, from this example as a woman does, because this wife is a specific example of the general call for the whole church to live a life that displays Christ. So let's jump in then and take a look at the passage. First, Christians display the excellencies of Jesus when we live lives of submission fueled by hope and fearlessness. Peter begins by instructing the wife to submit to her husband, who I think is probably not a believer. We are told that he disobeys the word, a phrase that Peter uses in 2.8 and 4.17 to clearly describe unbelievers. So we might as well jump in right to the hard part. We should ask, what does submit mean in this text? Well, 
Uh, let me start by saying what submission is not. Let's do, let's do the negative part first. Submission in this text cannot mean that the wife here must agree with her husband or even obey him in every circumstance. For example, Peter would absolutely tell her to refuse to worship her husband's gods or probably even go to events with her husband in which other gods were worshipped. She is to love him, to respect him, to bless him, and actively seek his good, but she is not to obey him without exception. So submission does not mean that. I also think that submission probably does not mean leaving her thoughts and opinions unspoken, or in other words, being a doormat for him. Now the text tells us that the wife is to win her husband without a word, but I don't think this is an absolute command. For instance... Uh, look at 3, 14 through 16, the famous passage. We are to always be ready for anyone who asks about the hope that is in us. Right? So, so the command to win him without a word, I don't think it envisions her never speaking ever. I think that Peter likely means that after she has presented the gospel, talked and reasoned with him, shared her faith and her hope with him, that she does not after that attempt to argue him into the kingdom. Right? She's not going to try and force faith with some sort of emotional ultimatum or, or, or undue pressure. Rather, what she's going to do after she has shared her faith is she becomes and models a godly Christ-like example of a wife to a husband who, despite his unbelief and despite his perhaps ridicule of her worshiping a crucified Messiah, she resists and refuses uh, uh, as a Christ-like wife. In other words, if words won't work, her life will do the talking. Peter's hope, just like in 2, 9 through 12, is that he will eventually see her lifestyle and he will come to realize and to say, how after all of this are you able to be such an amazing wife when I know I'm not a good husband and in fact not a good person at all. So submission does not mean obedience without exception. It doesn't mean being a doormat or not sharing your faith, leaving your opinions unexpressed. Submission, I think, does not mean living in fear of physical abuse. Uh, I want to get this one right, so I'm going to let Karen Jobes say what needs to be said. Forgive me if I quote from her a bit extensively here. She says this, There is nothing in this passage of Scripture that would either sanction the abuse of wives or suggest that women should continue to submit themselves to that kind of treatment. The nature of the suffering that Peter is addressing is primarily verbal abuse and her loss of social standing due to her abandoning her husband's gods. Peter wants Christians to conduct their relationships in a way that would be considered a good witness to unbelieving society, but because even Greco-Roman statutes did not sanction spousal abuse, a woman who endured domestic violence would not necessarily have been considered a virtuous wife. Peter is speaking specifically of suffering that may come from standing for an unpopular belief and doing what is good and right in the name of Christ, but Peter prohibits domestic violence in the exhortation to the husband, which we'll read in, in a second. In other words, uh, if abuse is happening, it is a distortion of the heart of God in the way in which he designed marriage. The church should absolutely put an end to it, and the current modern literature suggests that for the abusive, abusive husband, 
the proper way to extend grace to that person is by implementing serious and negative consequences. That's the only hope that this person has to be woken up to the destructive nature of their abuse. So if submission is none of those things, then what is submission? I think the context of this passage suggests that submission here means that rather than being passive or meeting his emotional pressure with bitterness or anger, the, the wife is rather to submit as one who lives a beautiful, fearless, hope-filled, joy-filled life of service and respect toward a husband who doesn't deserve it. The goal of which is to win him to Christ the same way that Christ wins and rescues us. Now, if you were paying close attention, you'll notice that I didn't actually answer the question. Well, to me, it's quite telling that Peter does not answer the question in any detail. He doesn't tell us exactly what submission looks like. In other words, Peter doesn't delve into any specifics. Rather, he opens the door for social transformation by leaving it to the husband and wife to work out how her submission is to be expressed in detail. Now, I had an argument with Mark for about three hours yesterday. Mark was very gracious and also very wrong. No, I'm just joking. Mark, Mark is usually, he's usually right when I'm wrong. So I, I will say this. It's not too hard to figure out what submission would have meant to first century ears. Right? Craig Keener uh, doesn't beat around the bush. The forms of submission Peter encourages here are ones that would appeal to typical non-believing husbands. Peter wants the wife to win the husband over, and part of doing that would have meant uh, forms of submission that would have been typical uh, in first century Greco-Roman society for non-believing husbands. Fair enough, but I would also argue and want to argue that when Jesus and his kingdom values are injected into any institution in any time and in any culture, uh, the manner in which that institution is meant to grow and evolve across time and culture is, like God's spirit, unpredictable and prone to adventure. The primary context in this passage points to respecting him beyond what he deserves because she herself has been loved by God in Christ to the uttermost. Uh, In what manner is she to offer this respect and submission? Well, it's clearly not owed to her husband, so on what basis is it given? Peter's going to tell us actually at the end. Her submission is fueled and motivated by her faith and hope in God. Sticking with your husband, Peter tells us, was one way that the holy women of old expressed hope and trust and faith in God. Look what Peter says. He says, adorn yourselves with gentleness and tranquility because this is how the holy women of old adorned themselves. This is Peter's version of telling women that they are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who are cheering them on because they themselves had a bold trust in God that was demonstrated in part by standing by their husbands, sticking with them. Peter knows, I think, that heroes are powerful motivators. I have them in my life, men and women who I look to, who are embodiments of the gospel, uh, who encourage and inspire me to keep going, 
to take one more step for Christ. I want to be like my friend Seth, who is wise and godly and calm in the midst of difficulty. I want to be like my friend Will, who is powerful and good at evangelism and has a servant's heart for others. I want to be like my friend Dustin, who is radically generous with his time and his money. All of those people point me to and make me want to be more like Christ, who makes all things new uh, despite myself and despite the darkness in the world. The specific example we're given here is Sarah. Sarah is a hero, we're told, because she calls Abraham Lord. It doesn't seem very heroic uh, on the surface, right? We're not exactly talking uh, Aragorn from Lord of the Rings or something here. But, but I think that Peter's point is that if you look back over Sarah's story, what you will see is that while Sarah does not always get as much airtime as Abraham does, she's right there with him through thick and thin. She sticks with him. Uh, even sometimes when uh, Abraham puts her in very difficult and vulnerable positions. Just like the wife of an unbelieving husband that Peter is talking to, to here, Sarah was at times put in positions of difficulty and vulnerability like when Abraham tries to pass her off as his sister, and she ends up in Pharaoh's harem. Abraham here is being disobedient, and yet she walked with him because she trusted and hoped in God. She stuck by him through thick and thin. She went on the adventure with him because she trusted God. And throughout it, she stuck with him and respected him, even when he didn't deserve it. You know, uh, we theologians have always got, uh, called... The promise God made to Abraham and Sarah, the what? The Abrahamic covenant. Yeah? Look with me just for a second. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for us. Genesis 17, 15. What God himself here says about Sarah. And God said, Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. I will give a son through her. I will bless her and she will become nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Maybe we've uh, shortchanged Sarah a bit. Should we rename it the Sarah-Eyed Covenant? I was toying around with it. How about the Sarah-Hammock Covenant? Mm, that one's a bit silly. Anyway, Sarah sticks by his side through it all because she trusts God, and Peter is encouraging this wife and us to look to examples like that and be inspired to do the same. You sisters in Christ whether your wives or not, are heirs of Sarah the matriarch. And so, you are also co-heirs of Jesus. Your submission then is to Christ, and therefore it is full of hope and victory. So the wife's submission here doesn't need to be done in bitterness, in defensiveness, in anger, because it is motivated in my, and grounded in her hope as an heir of women set apart by God for faith and service. This hope-filled submission will then result in a life that is full of gentleness and tranquility, point number two. Her submission will look like holy living that is full of gentleness and tranquility. Peter exhorts submission in the hopes that the husband may be won over when he sees the wife's gospel-shaped lifestyle. Peter here is going to call it, in 3, 1 through 4, he's going to call it respectful and pure conduct, the ESV says. Conduct here doesn't just refer to things that I do. It's your entire way of life, your lifestyle. And Peter says it is to be pure. 
The word, of course, is holy. He means then that her entire way of life is holy, that is, set apart from the unbelieving lifestyle of her husband and the culture around her. Her way of life is also described as reverent or respectful. Now, you're not supposed to use Greek when you preach, but we're all friends here, okay? Uh, the, the, The literal translation here is that she is meant to live a pure life, pure conduct. The literal Greek is in fear. Live, your, live a life of holy conduct in fear. And the question is, in fear of what? Well, it's likely not fear of her husband. We've already covered that. So I think probably what Peter means is, uh, live a holy lifestyle in reverence towards God. It is out of reverence and fear of her Lord that she maintains this holy way of life. What exactly does Peter mean by holy lifestyle, though? He tells us first what it's not and then what it is. What it is not is an ostentatious physical beauty. Uh, Now, don't get me wrong. Again, I don't think this is an absolute command when he talks about don't wear jewelry, don't adorn yourselves. Physical beauty is not a bad thing. It's not evil. God made the world a beautiful place and for us to enjoy it as a beautiful place. But the point is that how many of us in this day have run into something that was beautiful on the outside but empty or rotten on the inside. Beautiful on the outside, empty or rotten on the inside. That could almost be a pretty good description of modern secular life, couldn't it? And I think that's Peter's point. Uh, John Piper puts it well. If the goal is for this wife to win her husband over for Jesus, physical beauty and gold is no evidence of a life transformed by Christ. Anything that the world can offer well is no clear witness to a life that's been changed by God. The world can do physical beauty really well. But it's the hidden person who she is when nobody else is watching, visible only to herself and her husband in this case, that is what's going to win him to Christ. That is the evidence of a miraculous life changed by the love and power of the gospel. So that's what a holy life isn't. What a holy life is, Peter sums up with gentleness and tranquility. The word gentle here is the same word sometimes translated as meek, as in Matthew 5.5. The meek will inherit the earth. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew eleven twenty nine, when he tells us to learn from him because he is gentle or meek and humble in heart. Similarly, the word tranquil can be found in Isaiah 66, 2 and in 1 Timothy 2, 2. Paul uses tranquil or quiet, wishing that all Christians could lead such a life. In other words, these qualities have nothing to do with this person's disposition as a woman. These aren't feminine traits. This verse is not saying that if you are a woman who is naturally gifted or confident or blunt even in your personality, you don't match who this woman is and you need to change. These aren't personality traits. They're characteristics that every believer ought to have. Every follower of Christ is meant to be gentle and tranquil because our lives are couched and hidden in the victory and in the love and in the hope of the gospel. So we respond to a world full of hate and darkness with gentleness and tranquility. Our souls are gentle and tranquil because victory is ours. Peter is saying that 
for this godly wife, when your unbelieving husband mocks you or tries to pressure you into abandoning Christ, you don't need to respond with anger or bitterness or vengeance or defensiveness. Rather, your soul and your behavior evidences gentleness and tranquility. Peter knows, I think, because he has followed Christ, he knows that gentleness and tranquility is powerful, especially when it is displayed in the midst of unjust suffering. We saw Corey Ten Boom's example. Uh, go back 2,000 years almost and hear from Ignatius of Antioch what he wrote on his way to death in the Colosseum. He says, Pray continually for humankind that they may find God, for there is in them hope of repentance. Therefore, allow them to be instructed by you, at least by your deeds. In response to their anger, be gentle. In response to their boasts, be humble. In response to their slander, offer prayer. In response to their errors, be steadfast in the faith. In response to their cruelty, be civilized. Do not be eager to imitate them. Let us show them by our forbearance, our willingness to forgive, that we are brothers and sisters. And so let us imitate the Lord. So this godly woman expresses her submission to her husband through a holy life, that is marked by gentleness and tranquility. Uh, Finally, we get to the husbands, uh, who Peter addresses last and most briefly. First, because husbands had all the power in the relationship back then. But also, I think, because husbands are dull-witted, and we need to keep things simple when we talk to them. Oh, really? Come on, that was good. (laughs) I could tell. All right. Uh, Notice first that Peter uses the word likewise. What does that do that links the husbands with the wives and the slaves? Okay? In Christ, we are all on equal footing. And while the words he uses to instruct the husband are different, his advice amounts to much the same. They are to live with their wives, it says, in an understanding way, in verse 7. Literally, it's live with your wives according to knowledge. According to knowledge of what is the question? I think he means live with your wives according to God's knowledge. Husbands don't look to the world or to themselves or to anything else, including themselves, right, for advice on how to treat their wives. It's not my preference or wisdom. It's God's knowledge that I look to. And what we learn, Peter tells us, is two things. First, we live, uh, we live with our wives according to the knowledge that while God is no respecter of persons, his heart has always been especially bent towards the marginalized and dismissed. The widow, the orphan, the humble, the poor, the oppressed, those whom the world discounts and discards. So when Peter calls husbands to honor wives as the weaker vessel... This isn't referring to anything like intellectual or spiritual or moral or emotional capacity. It's simply talking about the fact that women are on average physically weaker and therefore they have historically been socially and economically more vulnerable. Uh, So we are to live as men who uh, live according to the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is is that God especially honors those whom the world marginalizes and dismisses in the same way we are to honor our wives the way God honors and values those whom the world discards. 
So that is the knowledge we are to live according to. The second one is equally important. And that is that your wife is not just a person that God has supplied to you as your ally and confidant. She is a co-heir of the grace of life. She is a co-heir of the very universe. Uh, We just looked at blessed are the meek or the gentle because they will inherit the earth. Uh, What that refers to, I think, is likely that in God's kingdom values, in God's economy, it's those who are gentle, who are marked by gentleness, who will literally inherit everything that is Jesus's. So as a follower of Jesus, my wife is to be honored as a co-heir of God's gift of imperishable new creation life. So in the end, this passage doesn't just show us how to be good husbands and wives only. It does do that, and it's specific to that. But I think it also does something more broad. It shows us how the gospel calls us to let Jesus' redeeming love, his sacrifice, and his service transform every familial and societal relationship from the prime minister, president, prime minister, whatever, from the prime minister down to the next-door neighbor. Our lives are to be so full of hope and beauty and good that the world's slander is silenced and we put on display the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into light. The hope and power and the unbreakable love of God compels and motivates and grounds our holy lifestyle that is marked by gentleness and tranquility so that others may also be brought out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to we who do not deserve it. Uh, We sang earlier uh, that Jesus is our joy, our righteousness, our freedom, our steadfast love, our deep and boundless peace. May all of our relationships, especially those most closest to us, but also uh, from an un- to, to those in an unbelieving world around us, may they see that and may they be turned towards your love and your grace as well. Our hope is in you and our victory is assured. May that allow us to live lives of the secret person of the heart that conforms in every way to the rescue and redemption that you have provided in your son. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. This recording of QTC Chapel is made possible with the support of our generous financial partners. If you have found this podcast helpful and encouraging, would you please consider partnering with us? For details on how to do this, visit www.qtc.edu.au and click on Support QTC.